Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today we're rebroadcasting a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. Leading up to Israel Independence Day, we're talking about the importance of the establishment of the State of Israel. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. wanted to ask a question talking about Israel and I remember years ago a uh, phenomenal um, columnist for the Washington Post uh, if you remember him he unfortunately passed away Charles Krauheimer who was a great friend of Israel and uh, unfortunately you know the media isn't always uh, terribly positive in its coverage of Israel if you didn't know that, but um, he was extraordinarily supportive uh, of Israel, and um, he was writing an article at the time about Israel's policy of targeting terrorist leaders and keeping them on the run, which was really successful on some level from pre uh, in preventing a lot of terrorism. Uh, if the main, um, you know, leaders and brainchilds of terrorism are kept running away from Israeli forces or um, targeted killings, um, then it prevented, it prevents terrorism. And he pointed to that, and I remember years ago, the security fence. The security fence that Israel built uh, to protect uh, some of the Jewish communities from a lot of terrorism that was going on. Nobody liked really to talk about it, but Krauthammer spoke about how the fence was preventing countless penetrations of terrorists into Israel, stopping the many attacks that had been planned and making them almost impossible to carry out. Uh, I'm talking about now at least 10 years ago when um, there were just waves and waves of terrorist attacks going on in Israel. And so from a military and strategic point of view, these two factors that Krautheimer offered us was really a rational explanation for Israel's relative success against terrorism over the years. But they do not fully alone express or explain the dramatic reduction in terrorism. Israel has been able to thankfully deal with one of the greatest problems of the 20th to 21st century, um, which is um, Islamic fundamentalism, specifically terrorism, but um, it's very hard for me as a rabbi to believe that those things that Israel did alone were responsible for the reduction in, in, in terrorism. Because the most trained and skilled and powerful army in the world, the United States of America, that has far greater resources and abilities than Israel does, um, cannot always contain terrorism. There is another factor at work, and I thought I would share that with you in our discussions of Zionism and of Israel, and it's a factor that I believe we as Jews must recognize as we begin to get ready for Yom Ma'ut next week, and I call it the G factor. G standing for, you, you thought of it, God. There's no military or strategic explanation can alone fully account for the IDF's success in combating terrorism, nor can it completely explain Israel's continued existence against all odds. Every war that Israel has been forced to fight, it has won. 
and it is one in a way which military strategy and military prowess cannot alone explain. And we started speaking yesterday about 1948, Milchemet HaShachror, and I want to fill people in a little about some of the details of what happened. But essentially, when the United Nations declared the state of Israel a state, which was a vote in the General Assembly of the United Nations, and by the way, that alone was a whole miracle in and of itself. Uh, we sort of take it for granted. You know, we would think that after the Holocaust, of course the world's sympathy would be aroused. And everybody would say the Jews deserve and need their own state. If we had a state in the 1930s, right, then all of those Jews that were trying, that were clamoring to get into the United States or into British-controlled Palestine could have had a safe haven and so many Jews could have been saved from Hitler. Okay, thank you for posting that, Benjamin. We're not going to be using it for a while. We may not even use it at all today. We'll see. So, the, um, but what happened was is that in 1948, when it became clear to the world that Israel needed its own state, we finally got a vote in favor of partition in the United Nations. And by the way, there's a whole crazy story about the United, about the United States' vote which was not a guarantee. Harry Truman was being heavily lobbied by the Arab world and specifically the State Department, which was more Arab-leaning than Congress. And I think this is actually a true statement. In the United States, Congress has, generally speaking, always been very pro-Israel. The State Department has always been not as pro-Israel. And the White House always wavered. But the White House was always pressured by either members of the State Department, depending on who the Secretary of State is, and the other side, the members of Congress. And Truman was getting a lot of pressure from both sides, and it was not clear that Truman, who was the President of the United States at the time when Israel was being considered for statehood, whether Truman was actually going to vote in favor of partition or not. Now, he did. And the United States became the first country to vote in favor of partition, and we should never forget that. Something else we shouldn't forget. Who else voted in favor of partition? Russia, which was weird because Russia at that time, for decades, under Stalin, was ruthlessly persecuting Soviet Jews. Russian Jews caught behind the Iron Curtain who were clamoring to get out of Russia. I used to be very involved when I was in college and graduate school with the refuseniks. With Russian Jews, I spoke about this before, and for Stalin to vote in favor of partitioning Palestine and give the Jews a state was like a crazy, crazy miracle. So we got the vote. What happened literally the next day after there was a vote in favor of partitioning uh, the Palestine, giving a, a section to the Palestinians and giving a section to the uh, Jews? There was an attack. There was an attack on Israel by Jordan Egypt, Syria, all of the Arab countries attacked Israel. And essentially, the uh, Haganah, which was the fledgling uh, just beginnings of the IDF, uh, had an army, uh, less than 55,000, primarily composed of Holocaust survivors, defeated the combined military forces of six Arab armies who had tanks and planes. And I, I just don't know how anyone can look at that event in a purely military sense. 
without taking into consideration, as I say, the G factor. Now, Charles Krautheimer, who I began to talk about, Charles Krautheimer is, uh, is a columnist, Washington Post, big supporter of Israel, but he never talks about God. He's not a rabbi. He was just talking about the security fence, and he was talking about Israel's policy of targeting terrorists, of going on the offensive and targeting terrorists, so it makes it harder for those terrorist leaders to plan attacks. He said those are the two factors that were reducing terrorism in Israel over 10 years ago. But I'm introducing a third factor, because you can't explain Israel without miracles, without the G factor of God, if you will. Ben-Gurion himself, who was not a religious personality, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, he said famously that any Jew who believes, who doesn't believe in miracles, is not a realist. <laughs> it's a great line. We always think, you know, if you believe in miracles, you're an idealist. No, it says for a Jew not to believe in miracles is ridiculousness. It, it, it just, you're not even being realistic. You're not just looking at the facts. So 1948, when we were successful against six Arab armies, it was not by military prowess alone. 19 years later, um, Senya is asking, did America assist the Haganah at the time? Um, the actual supplier, it's a very, very good question. Anybody here know who supplied Israel with arms until 1967, the number one supplier of Israel uh, to, to defend herself against the, her Arab neighbors was actually France. France until 1967. The United States of America voted in favor of partition and was, was, was supporting Israel in other ways, but was not the main supplier of arms. That changed in 67 when it became clear to the United States that Russia was uh, exerting its influence over the Middle East through the Arab countries. And to this day, you'll see if you go to a lot of um, Syria, and Egypt, and uh, Lebanon, well, not Lebanon as much, but you'll see who was supplying them for decades. It was Russia, tanks and planes. It was France, just to answer your question initially. And in 1967, uh, finally, the United States started coming in and developing the kind of relationship that we now know is an extraordinarily uh, strong one between Israel and the United States. But in 1967, when those same Arab nations became poised on every conceivable Israeli border. You have to understand how crazy 1967 was. 1967, there were hundreds of thousands of Syrian and uh, Egyptian troops that were poised on both of Israel's, of two of Israel's borders. They were nervous that there would be a third country who ended up getting in, involved in the fight in 1967. It was Egypt in the south. It was Syria in the north, and then Jordan came in as well. Jordan didn't come in until the middle of the war. Um, Golda Meir was trying desperately to keep King Hussein out of the war, but the Egyptians and the Syrians convinced Jordan that they should join in with them and attack Israel. And that was an unbelievable moment um, of terror, really, for the Jewish state. They were actually digging graves in Tel Aviv in parking lots and in um, playgrounds because they were expecting, almost God forbid, like a third Holocaust. There were so many Arab troops 
there were so many um, tanks and, 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 and airplane and, and warplanes that were about to attack Israel in 1967. And when those same Arab nations were poised on every conceivable Israeli border, ready to attack, and Israel somehow prevailed, again, it was not by military prowess alone. Understand what Israel was facing 19 years after the creation of the state. The United States made it abundantly clear, and you can see this. I've read a lot of books about this, but um, the best book is called Six Days of War by Michael Oren. And Michael Oren details what was happening to Israel from all the other countries. And he says that the CIA made it very clear to the Mossad that if Israel shoots, fires the first bullet against those other countries that were about to attack, America could not stand behind Israel. America could only stand behind Israel if Israel got attacked first. And this was crazy because the only um, advantage that Israel had, the only actual um, survival strategy Israel had at the time was to preemptively attack and get the surprise attack in. But the United States said that they could not back Israel if, if she did that. Now we know what Israel did. Israel went alone. And thank God that they did because that element of surprise, and we're going to talk about this next week, when we get closer to Yom Atzimut, I'm going to give you a whole class about the 1967 war. It was unbelievable. But not too many years later, in 1973, when Egypt and Israel simultaneously attacked again from the north and the south, and literally there were just a few Israeli tankers who managed to hold off hundreds of Syrian tanks in the Golan Heights. Again, it was not by military prowess alone. In 1976, when Israeli commandos freed hostages taken by German and Palestinian terrorists in Uganda, and you can see there are movies and documentaries about this, it was an unbelievable feat. Nobody can imagine to, to travel thousands of miles into someone else's country, into an African country, and to breach their sovereignty and go in and rescue Israeli hostages that were taken captive by these Palestinian and German um, uh, terrorists, it was also not by military prowess alone. We know that uh, only one Jew lost his life. I shouldn't say only. One Jew is, is everything, and that, of course, was, uh, was Yoni Netanyahu, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's younger brother, who was the head of that uh, brigade, and he was killed in that attack to rescue um, the Israeli hostages. But I can't believe, again, there wasn't some other factor at work. In 1991, I remember this, when Iraq, of blessed memory, rained 39 Scud missiles on Israeli population centers, and not one Jew was killed directly. I remember seeing pictures of that the Israeli media would release of these huge craters in the ground. These Scud missiles were so frightening. They made so much noise and they created so much havoc in Israel. 39 Scud missiles were rained on Israeli population centers and not one Jew was killed directly. It also revealed some other force at work. There's a very important verse in the book of Deuteronomy in Zvarim 11:12, Enei Hashem al ha'aretz, the eyes of God are upon the land. Me'rishit hashana ad acharit hashana, from the beginning of the year till the end of the year. The Torah tells us 
that all year long God keeps an eye out for Israel. And our sages speak about the unique hashkacha, the special providence that God exercises over Israel, a certain spiritual presence that permeates the land and that protects its people. And the law can't really define that presence in definitive or concrete terms. You can feel it when you're there. How many of us, when we have traveled to Israel, have felt something special when we land? And maybe it's the psychology, oh, I'm so excited. I know that this is the land of my forefathers, but there's something there that you can just, you can just experience, certain energy. Avira da'aretz, the rabbis call it. It's the, it's the atmosphere which is conducive. And so yes, we have a great military, and thank God for the IDFs, and thank God for the Shin Bet and the Mossad, excellent intelligence. I'm watching Fauda, the third season of Fauda. It's driving me crazy. Uh, I, it's like addictive. I'm like binge watching it now. I was up till three in the morning. You didn't hear that from me. Don't stay up till three in the morning and binge watch Netflix, except for Fauda. It's pretty unbelievable. But we have an amazing intelligence. We have the Mossad. We have the Shin Bet. We have these people who go in and are undercover and risk their lives. And maybe the best and most dedicated air pilots and military in the world, but behind all of this is this cosmic force that's looking over us and that's protecting us and that's watching over us and performing miracles even when we are unaware of their occurrence. And many of us are familiar with the one sin. Please, by the way, I'm going on and on. I'm going on my, my Zionist rampage over here. Please feel free to uh, oh, look at this unbelievable other people. Uh, yes, Jonathan Brody, excellent show, great season. No spoilers. Okay, I won't say what's happening. Al Cohn is on the line. I know Al Cohn is probably appreciating some of this. He's a very astute political commentator himself. Uh, Joseph Anthony is here. And Michal Nina Uri, Elias Ariel Steinberg. Hey, Ariel, pleasure to have you. Jonathan Bodie, what made France get behind Israel in supplying arms? It's an excellent question. I'm not so up on that. Um, listen, I'm a realist. I studied um, my approach to international affairs. It was very much informed by uh, a great scholar of international relations. I used his textbook when I was in graduate school, Hans Morgenthau. And Morgenthau said that all countries operate within their own national interests. And I'm not naive to believe that France gave arms to Israel, not simply because France loved Israel. And the United States came in later after France pulled out and started giving arms to Israel. Countries operate within their own self-interest. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong or unethical about that, but I think it's a pretty amazing thing. I mentioned this yesterday, how Israel goes out of its way to help countries without expecting anything in return sending medical teams to Haiti after the earthquake, bringing African children to Israel for life-saving heart transplants and heart uh, operations. It's an unbelievable thing. But generally speaking, countries operate within their own self-interest. I can't tell you exactly what motivated France. I can tell you what motivated America. And that is, that is communist self, uh, containment. Because when... We know that the United States fought in Vietnam, in Korea, in Cuba. All of these types of uh, wars were going on. Not a real war in Cuba, but the whole missile, Cuban Missile Crisis it was also a war against Russia through proxies. 
And the United States was fighting against Russia through Israel, against the Arabs. Because when the United States saw that the Arabs were getting more and more of their armaments from Russia, and Russia wasn't doing this because it um, just hated Jews, it did this to spread communism. The United States wants to contain communism, so now it starts backing Israel. I don't think that exists anymore. I don't think that's the reason. I think now we just have a very close relationship militarily, economically, in all sorts of ways. And thank God for APAC and other groups that have developed that relationship in a very positive and healthy way, I think. Um, but that's the way I think, it, to some degree, it began. Um, Self-containment uh, of communism. Now, I was about to share something a little more spiritual, but it's all connected to the politics as well. Uh, a lot of you know that I have a, a, a deep interest just politically and, um, and understanding specifically what's going on in Israel through the eyes of the Torah and what's happening in the actual world today. But many of us are familiar with the one sin that the Torah records Moses committed. What was the one sin that we know of? There might have been more, but the one that we know of that is mentioned in the Torah, what, what did Moshe do that he wasn't supposed to do? I'll give you guys a minute to think about in the Torah. Jeff Koblenz is with us, Adam Kaplan, Larissa asked a ple pleasure. Yoel Sadian, hey, my friend Yoel, pleasure to have you guys here. Uh, Daniel Wallach, we were up at 3 a.m. for Homeland. <laughs> yes, it's quite a habit. I'll tell you a problem I'm having. I got hooked on Homeland, and then Fowder came out. And I don't have enough time for Homeland and Fowder. And I felt like that my, my American patriot patriotism was being tested. Would I continue to watch Homeland at 3 in the morning, or would I switch to Fowder? I thought I could do both, Daniel Wallach. I can't do both. I had to choose. And I went with Fowder. What does that say about me? Dual loyalties. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm still waiting for an answer. What was Moses' one sin that he, that he, right, okay, both are great shows, Jonathan Greenstein, I, I agree. Hit the rock. <laughs> he hit the rock. Thank you, Jonathan Brody. And I guess that was Maya from MJE who suggested hitting the rock. Okay, so listen to the words here. The children of Israel are in the desert. They're crying out for water, right? No 7-Elevens in the desert. In response, God asks Moshe to speak to a rock to bring forth water, right? Talk to a rock. When was the last time he spoke to a rock? Instead of Moses speaking to the rock to ask the rock for water because the people were thirsty, he is then informed, what does he do? He hits the rock. He seems to lose it. There are lots of explanations of what happened. Maimonides writes that he displayed anger, which was a very, very bad thing for a great leader like Moshe to display publicly. He hits the rock and then is informed that he would not be permitted to enter the land of Israel. Because you did not... Hey, Alex, welcome, my friend. Good to have you here. Okay, uh, Randy is saying he killed an Egyptian. He killed an Egyptian that was way earlier, and that was not considered sinful. Why did Moses kill the Egyptian? Because the Egyptian was merciless, mercilessly beating a fellow Jew for no reason. And Moses understood through his prophetic vision that if he did not intervene and protect his fellow Jew, 
the Egyptian would actually kill the Jewish slave. And therefore, Moshe stepped in and performed an act of self-defense, third-party self-defense, which was 100% justifiable. So that was not sinful. What was sinful was that when God told Moses, speak to the rock for water, he hit the rock instead. And here's the verse from Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. Because you do not believe in me, God says to Moses, to sanctify me in the eyes of the nation, therefore you will not bring this people to the land that I have given them. Now, I never understood that. God says to Moshe, because you hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, you're not going into the land of Israel. I mean, really? How does the punishment fit the crime? What is the relationship between Moses failing to reveal God's name in a more miraculous way. I guess it is considered more miraculous. If a rock would spew forth water after you speaking to the rock than after you hitting the rock, okay, but really, Moses' whole lifelong mission, he had to deal with all the quetching and all the complaining of the Jewish people in the wilderness for 40 years. He had to take the Jewish people out of Egypt and deal with all the difficulties and, and, and challenges of saving this people from Pharaoh and keeping them alive in a desert for two to three million people. And he slips up for one moment. Instead of hitting, instead of speaking to the rock, he hits it. And God is like, is so harsh on him. You're not going into Israel, Moses. You're not going into Israel because you hit the rock as opposed to speaking to the rock. It just doesn't seem fair. So how does this punishment fit the crime? What is the relationship? between Moshe failing to reveal God's name in a more miraculous way and not being allowed into the land of Israel. And some of the commentaries explain. Uh, by the way, I'll give you guys a, a chance to, to, um, to give a suggestion. What's a suggestion? Abigail, my daughter just came to borrow. Abigail, sweetheart, what's the answer? My kids are very focused on their school. <laughs> my daughter just came up here. Um, she didn't want to disturb my teaching. And we are sharing the same um, charger for our Mac. We have one charger between the two of us. And the two of us are on our Mac all day. And it's pretty unbelievable. It's like, it's like a support system. which constantly back and forth. But if she was here, I'll tell you what my daughter Abigail would probably say. Abba, what do you want from me? Leave me alone. Just kidding. Um, anyway, let, let's hear. How do you justify God's ways, if you will? How is it that God was so tough on Moshe to prevent him from entering the land of Israel? Moshe never saw Israel. His whole lifelong dream was to take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them to Israel. And because he slips up and he speaks to the rock, he hits the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, he is punished in this way. So Jonathan Brody is saying it was his belief in Hashem so what does that mean? It was his belief in Hashem. Of course, Moshe had a great belief in God. So instead of talking to the rock, he hit the rock. As long as he can get some water for the Jews. I'm just getting some water for myself. This conversation about water in the wilderness is making me so thirsty. Hang on. Can you imagine? Look at this, what I found. I just opened up the refrigerator. How great is this? This is a Gatorade. How happy would have our ancestors been in Egypt? No, in the wilderness, if they had Gatorade. All they wanted was a little water. Baruch
That is great. That is unbelievable. I'm not telling you to drink Gatorade. There's a lot of sugar and all that other stuff in there, but it keeps me going. Uh, by the way, I'm doing a wedding today at 6.30. Yeah, my first Corona wedding. I'm so excited. I want to wish a mazel tov to Taryn Tanzer and Stephen Grunstein, who are getting married in Scarsdale um, in their backyard. And I'll be performing the wedding. There will be less than 10 people there. So uh, no problem. Those pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> who else knows that reference? Any other Seinfeld lovers here? Mm. Thank you for your main, Rachel. Okay, hold on. Someone, Dever Seidel. He did not demonstrate, Moses did not demonstrate the kind of patience that he would need going forward into Israel when the Jewish people, good, I'm just reading, when the Jewish people would need a tremendous amount of patience in the years to come. Okay, that's an interesting suggestion. Maybe God deprives Moses of being able to go into the land of Israel because he sees that he's lacking patience. But, okay, it's a good suggestion. But come on, he's only a human being. Do you know how many times the Jewish people complained and fetched and drove Moshe crazy in the wilderness? How many times God wanted to wipe out the Jewish people, start over again with Moses, and Moshe turned to God and said, I'm sorry. He was the best defense attorney in the world. He kept protecting the Jewish people. And here, he slipped up a little. So I hear you, patience. I mean, what you're suggesting, Deborah, is not so different from what Maimonides suggests. The Rambam says that he became angry, and anger is such a negative, a negative kind of um, value. Well, it's not a value, it's a negative emotion. And that to display anger publicly would be really um, a very not good thing for someone of Moses' caliber. Uh, but I wanna give you another answer that's very much fitting into this whole discussion I wanted to have with you about Israel today about the G factor, like Charles Krauthammer attributing just the security fence, Israel's targeted killings of terrorists, and saying this is the reason for Israel's success. I'm suggesting that the reason for Israel's success in all of these years is not simply um, brains, intelligence, military. There's something else going on. And that is, God is telling Moshe, witnessing a water coming from a rock after someone spoke to the rock, it looks more miraculous, it looks more spectacular than if you see a human being hitting a rock and water comes forth. Of course, if you and I saw someone hitting a rock and water was coming out, we'd be like, wow. But how much more wowed would we be or how much more wowed would our ancestors have been if they had seen Moshe going over to a rock and saying, rock, you know, my people, they're thirsty. They'd love a little Gatorade coming out of you if you don't mind. Um, I could use a Coke with some ice, oh, maybe a beer. No, just some cold water. And then all of a sudden, the stuff comes from the rock. How awesome is that? As opposed to taking a, a stick, this is my son's calculator. He was working here before. My son is doing a lot of uh, physics and mathematics at Yeshiva University now. Um, he's quite the brain. Anyways, make believe that this is a, uh, a stick, Moses' stick, and this is the rock, and he's hitting the rock, and then water comes forth. I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. But not as unbelievable as, Mr. Rock, please give us some water. 
And therefore, this is what some of the Mepharshim, some of the commentators explain, speaking to the rock would have demonstrated a greater miracle, an even more spectacular supernatural event than hitting it. And therefore, God was telling Moshe when he said in those words in Bamidbar 2012, in Numbers 2012, because you did not believe in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the nation, therefore you would not bring this people to the land that I had given them. What God was telling Moshe was that because you failed to reveal a greater miracle, you in turn will be deprived of entering the land of miracles. The place of miracles in this world is the land of Israel. Israel is the greatest source of God's miracles. It remains the address here on earth for God's supernatural hand throughout human history. Supernatural things take place in Israel, things we cannot explain. And if you, Moshe, God is telling Moshe, you have one job in this world, and that is to reveal my greatness to all of humanity. And I want to bring the Jewish people into Israel now, and I want to show the world that there is a God, and Israel is going to be a place of miracles. You're not doing a good enough job revealing my miracles. You're doing somewhat of a job. You're hitting the rock, right? And water's coming forth, but there's a better, there's a better miracle to be performed here, and that's speaking to the rock. This is just one commentary, one way of explaining it. But it demonstrates that Israel is all about miracles. Oops, I just lost our messages. Oops, I didn't mean that. Hold on a minute. No, I didn't mean that either. There it is. I'm sorry. Michael Savitsky has joined us. Welcome, Michael. Jonathan Brody, is there commentary if Hashem mentioned what Moshe should say to the rock? No, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't, a very good question, Jonathan. It doesn't say, it just says that God told Moshe to speak to the rock. And because Moshe did not speak to the rock and he hid instead, that slight infraction was a diminution of God's miraculous nature in the world. Tanya is also watching. Welcome, Tanya. Steffi, what a beautiful crowd of people here that have joined. But let me just tell you something. We have a few more minutes. Israel is not just the address for supernatural events. Things which happen in Israel on a purely human, normative level also bespeak something truly extraordinary. And to me, they also represent God's hand in history, specifically Jewish history in modernity. Despite the fact that Israel is the hundredth smallest country in the world, Israel is the hundredth smallest country in the world with less than one one-thousandth of the world's population. It's tiny. State of, state of New Jersey is bigger than Israel. Israel has the fourth largest air force in the world. Think about that. After the United States, Russia, and China, it's Israel. With Israeli air force pilots who are second to none. Okay, maybe that's not supernatural, but it's a pretty unbelievable thing. Israel, we know that developed the cell phone and most of the Windows operating systems. The Pentium MMX chip technology, which is essential for all of this, was designed in Israel, as well as the Pentium microprocessor that's found in most of our computers. Voicemail technology was developed in Israel. Uh, I remember years ago, AOL Instant Messenger, which used to be the rage. That was from Israel. Israel's $100 billion economy is larger than all of the economies of its immediate neighbors combined. And just to give you a sense of how small Israel relative You're talking about countries like, I don't know, what is the population for Egypt? You can Google it right now. Israel has 8 million people living in, including Jews and Arabs. How many people living just in Egypt alone? 
probably 50, 60 million. And that's not Jordan, and that's not including Jordan, it's not including Syria, it's not including all the other. And Israel's $100 billion economy, larger than all of its neighbors, and has the highest percentages in the world of home computers per capita, with the highest ratio of university degrees to the population of the world. And Israel produces more scientific papers per capita than any other nation, and has the largest number of startup companies than any other country in the world per capita. Apart from Silicon Valley, here in the United States, Israel has the highest concentration of high-tech companies and is no less impressive when it comes to the area of medical technology. I love this, but uh, I've seen this actually. Israel was the one who developed the first ingestible video camera. It's so tiny that it fits inside of a pill and it can be used and is used in countries all over the world to view the small intestine from inside to detect possible disease or illness. We know that Israeli scientists also developed the first computerized, no radiation diagnostic technology to detect breast cancer, and it leads the world in the number of scientists and technicians in the workforce per capita. And relative to its population, again, all relative to its population, Israel is the largest absorbing immigrant nation on earth the largest absorbing immigrant nation on earth per its population. In 1984 and 1991, Israel airlifted 22,000 Ethiopian Jews who were at risk in Ethiopia, 22,000 in, in, in 1984, 1991. Altogether, there are over 100,000 Ethiopian Jews living today in Israel. And they brought these Jews to safety. And over the last decade, more than a decade now, over a million uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union. A million. Do you know what it is for a six million population of Jews to absorb another million? It's, it's an unbelievable thing. And all of this is happening while Israel is involved in regular wars and defending itself against terrorism and destruction with an economy which is continuously under strain by having to spend more per capita on its own protection than any other nation on earth. Do you know what the United States spends on the military and people complain it's too much, maybe five or 6%. 40% of Israel's GNP goes to the military. I never understood economically, just like how the country continues to run. But these accomplishments are of course due to the resources, the resourcefulness and the efforts of the Israeli people. But all of these things to me also point to something extraordinary. And that is God's special providence over the land and over the Jewish people. And the truth is, this was pointed out by our prophets years ago, centuries ago, by our greatest Nevi'im, only for us to see its realization centuries later. I'm going to end with a pasuk in the Torah, with a verse in the prophets. And I will bring back, this is in the book of Amos, I will bring back the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild desolate cities they will return and plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Israel was the only country in the world that entered the 21st century with a net gain in its number of trees, which is even more remarkable when you consider the fact that this happened in an area that's considered mostly desert. The Middle East, the average date tree, listen to this, is about 18 to 20 feet tall yields about 38 pounds of dates a year. 
Okay, the average date tree is about 18 to 20 feet tall. Gets about, yields about 38 pounds of dates each year. In Israel, date trees today now yield 400 pounds of dates a year and are short enough to be harvested from the ground. You've seen them when you drive and you see all these beautiful groves and these cute little trees where you can just literally pluck a date. The prophecy that I just read from the book of Amos of returning to Israel and making the land blossom has for sure come true. And I believe that we can therefore be confident that the prophecy expressed in the very next verse in the Torah will also come to pass and I will read it to you and I shall implant them upon their land and they shall never again be uprooted from their land that I have given them. May the state and the people of Israel continue to thrive and may our existence in our land remain forever secure. We're getting closer to Yom Ma'ud. We wish Israel a happy birthday. Thank you all for listening and for participating. We're going to continue uh, tomorrow. It's Friday, so we're going to devote our discussion to the Parsha, which is a very, very beautiful Parsha of Tazriya Mitzorah. I think we're going to speak a little uh, also about language and the way we speak, because Tazriya and Mitzorah, leprosy was a, um, a kind of uh, ailment that was given to people who spoke Lashon Hara. So we'll talk a little about that tomorrow and also the relationship to the land of Israel. The land of Israel does not tolerate certain types of immoral activities. We're going to speak about that as connected to the Parsha as well. I uh, want to continue to encourage everyone here to keep coming online every day at 1230. We had a beautiful group again uh, for Lunch and Learn. We'll see you again Lunch and Learn tomorrow on Friday. A couple of important announcements for Shabbat. Um, Tomorrow morning, Yosef will be doing his morning meditation as every Friday at 8.45. Uh, we'll then be having, um, at 10 o'clock, we'll be having uh, Rabbi Shuki's Hasidic insights um, into the Parsha. We'll then be having, oh, I saw tonight, actually, uh, I saw an email. Ooh, um, I was supposed to announce this, I think. Um about what is happening tonight. Manhattan Jewish Experience here. Here's the email from Maya. Um, Thursday night, tonight at 6.30, delicious Jewish foods from our home to yours, whether you're a cooking master or total novice. Join us weekly in MG's Tasty Kitchen. Learn how to make apple cranberry tarts. Oh my God. Tonight, um, Allison, Oh my God, it's Allison. Allison's gonna be teaching about how to make um, uh, apple cranberry tarts, so you need to come in for that tonight. And then tomorrow, Allison, uh, and then afterwards, Allison will be teaching a class on soul searching uh, at 7.30. So she'll be going back to back, 6.30, teaching you how to make apple cranberry tart, and then 7.30, um, every Thursday night, Allison uh, joins and us and, and shares inspiring words of Torah. That'll be tonight. And then uh, Lunch and Learn tomorrow uh, will be at 12.30. And I mentioned in the morning, Yosef, meditation at 8.45. And then uh, Rabbi Shuki, Hasidic Insights at 10. Um, we wrote that we're going to make uh, Friday Night Lights. It says 6.15, but that's wrong. We're going to make it 6.30 tomorrow because Shabbos is getting a little later. Uh, Friday Night Lights will be at 6.30. Havdalah will be at 8.40 on Saturday night. We wrote 8.30, but that's incorrect. should be 8.40. Um, I want to thank you guys for being with us.
Stick with us and have a wonderful day. Stay healthy, stay strong, eat healthily, drink a lot. Think about your ancestors thirsty in the wilderness and have something to drink. L'chaim, my friends. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.